In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. In verse 6, that Scripture popped out to me this week. The Apostle Paul says that it was to the praise of the glory of His grace. Grace, um, as the the opening hymn we sang this morning, it it is a charming sound. The message of grace. What our brothers already brought to us this morning is the message of grace. And, and, And Paul says here that we've been blessed with all these spiritual blessings in Christ. We've been chosen in Christ before the world ever began. We've been chosen to be holy and we've been chosen to be without blame. And, 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 and today, you're, you're listening to a man and, and you're around people and you yourself are someone who is not holy and you're someone who is to be blamed. But it says that God, before the world began, chose you that you should be holy, that, that the end product is that you would be holy and you would be without blame. Because He predestinated it. He predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto Himself. He, he predetermined your destination that you would be adopted into the family of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to God Himself. And it was according to the good pleasure of God's will. Um, it, was, it was God's will that you would be saved. It was God's will that the saints there at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, that would be to the believers in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, it was God's will that you would be accepted in the Beloved, that you would be predestinated to be His child. And he says in verse 6, he says that all that would be to the praise, that is the worshiping, the praise of the glory of His grace. And it is in His grace that we have been accepted in the Beloved. You know, you often hear about accepting God as if there's an offer that God has been offered to you, and it is not true that God has ever been offered to men. And I can hear Brother Sam right now in my mind, our former pastor, saying you can get in a lot of trouble if you go around accepting things that were never offered to you. <laughs> See, we are accepted. We've been made us accepted. We've been made accepted in the Beloved. You remember when Jesus Christ was baptized, I believe it's at the end of Matthew chapter 3, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my Beloved. Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, you and I are in Christ. We're in the beloved Son, and that way we could be made accepted. And for people who are unacceptable in the sight of God to be made accepted, that's a mind-blowing thing, isn't it? And he says all this is done, and it should result in us praising the glory of His grace. That is the splendor, the magnificence of His grace. We, um, we often marvel at, at many things, right? Um, we, we marvel at, um, think, think about the Grand Canyon or natural things, and there are things that take our breath away when we see them. We marvel at the creations of men. Uh, we, uh, we, we marvel at the bank accounts that people have accumulated over their life. Um, anything here on earth that would make us marvel that we would, we would find, um, magnificent or or splendorous, all those things pale in comparison to the grace that has been bestowed upon God's people. Do you understand that today? The most most mind-blowing thing, if I can use that term, in this world is the grace that God has disposed upon His people. I wrote the definition of grace down. This is from Webster's Dictionary. It says, appropriately, the free, unmerited love and favor of God the spring and source of all benefits men receive from Him. 
and then this, this is from the Oxford English Dictionary. It says, in theology, the definition of grace is the free and unmerited favor of God, the divine influence which operates in men to regenerate and sanctify. That's what our brothers already talked about today, that it was the grace of God that bringeth salvation. It's appeared to all men, to rich men, to poor men, to white men, to black men, to free men, uh, to enslaved men. It's, it's, in, it's appeared to all kinds of people, to Jews and to Gentiles, to Americans and to the African. And it's, it's, it's a global grace. You see that? It's a huge grace. The only way that John could have that vision in Revelation where there would be people out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that there would be this diverse, huge group that no man could number around the throne praising God. The only way that that could come to fruition is not through the plans of men or the missionary boards that have been established in this world. The only way that that could come to fruition is by God's grace. Do you see that? That's the only way. And so he says it is the free and unmerited favor of God. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. The, the, the divine influence which operates in men to regenerate and sanctify and, and listen to what grace does, and to impart strength, to endure trial, and to resist temptation. I'm going to tell you the only way that we can, we can be strengthened, that we can endure trials, and that we can resist temptation we don't do that on our own. We do that through the same grace that regenerated us in the beginning. Do you understand? Brother Michael Goins wrote this. He said, grace is God's initiative in love to bestow blessings upon people who deserve cursing. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? A people who deserve to be cursed and banished from God's presence forever, God takes the initiative to love them anyways and to bless them to live with Him. That's grace. Uh, this is from Pastor Jeff Renfrey, who pastors a church in, uh, I believe, in Kentucky. And it says, God's, listen to this now, God's description of sin. Why, why was grace necessary? Because we're sinners, right? And, and in the Bible, he says, God's description of sin is such that there is so much bad in the best of men. Listen to that now. There is so much bad in the very best of men that salvation by grace is the only possibility. When you begin to understand who we are by nature in the total depravity and co complete corruption of mankind, uh, you, will, you will have to come to the conclusion that if anyone's going to be saved, it is going to be salvation by grace alone. Now listen to this. He says, further, God's description of grace is such that there is not so much bad in the worst of men that salvation by grace is an impossibility. <laughs> Don't y'all love that? That's saying that, that, that there's no one that is so bad that if God chooses to bring His grace upon that person, they can't be saved from their sins. From the Apostle Paul to the thief on the cross to me and you, we can't outrun grace. Don't y'all love that? That's the Gospel. And our God is a gracious God. You know, we think about all the attributes of God, and there are many that we could focus on. But the very graciousness of God is one that is one that I want to dwell on today. And you know, as we talk about the purpose of God bestowing His grace in the book of Ephesians would be that we would have a He would have a people that would praise Him for the glory of His grace. A called out people who would who who their lives would revolve around glorifying God, praising God because of the grace that He's bestowed upon them. And if we start to think about that, and maybe sometimes we don't glorify God for His grace. Maybe we don't praise the glory of His grace. Maybe, you know, there, there, are, there are many throughout the world who, um, who cheapen God's grace or who um, they, they relegate God's grace to a portion of salvation, but not all of salvation. See, the, the reason that they do that is not because they're, they're wicked or mean. Uh, it's because they've never seen grace for what grace truly is. If you ever see grace for what grace truly is, you can't help but, but magnify and marvel at the grace of God. Once you see you for who you are and God for who He is and what God did for you, you will marvel at grace. And so if it's, if it's today, next Sunday, if it goes on for a while, I want to I know more about grace. What about y'all? I want to know more about this, this gracious God. And... and and, and I want to look at some scriptures about God being gracious. 
And you know, there's a pattern in Scripture that repeats itself over and over. And if we were honest today, we would say that this same pattern repeats itself over and over in our very lives. And it's the fact that um, throughout history and, and throughout our lives, God's people, what we tend to do is God blesses us, but we tend to rebel against God and reject God and forget God and go our very own way, don't we? But, this, but, but that's not the only pattern. The same pattern that we, there's another pattern we see in Scripture is that even through the rebellion and through the rejection and through the disobedience, God is still gracious to His people. Isn't that, that's, that's the glory of His grace. In Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, it's recounting the story of the children of Israel and them coming out of Egypt. And in verse 12, it says, Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gave them right judgments and true laws and good statutes and commandments, and made known unto them the holy Sabbath, and commandments, uh, and, and, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You promised them that they should go in and possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. But they and their fathers, they and our fathers, dealt proudly. They hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments. It says they refused to obey. Neither were they mindful of thy wonders that thou did amongst them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a captain to return to their bondage. How many of you can identify personally with the children of Israel there? How many of you can look out at society, look out at the churches, look out at, at Christians today, and we could say, yes, I see that there are things that God has commanded, that God has been so good to me. God's given me bread for my hunger. He brought water from a rock. He supplied my very needs. And He tells me to do this, or He tells me to do that. But I refuse to obey. Not only do I refuse to obey, I see all the marvelous works. I see the change that He's made in my life. I see the change that He's made in others' lives. I see throughout history how the hand of God has been interwoven throughout human history to, to, to uh, promote uh, the Gospel, to, to, to save His very elect from the troubles of this world. I can see how He parted the Red Sea. I can see how He, he, he provided a ram uh, for Abraham. I can see how He healed the sick, how He gave sight to the blind, how He raised the dead. I can see the wonders, not only in the New Testament, not only in the Old Testament, but in my very life. I can see the wonders that God has performed in my very life. But yet, I'm, I don't even think about those things. I'm not mindful of the wonders that God does among me. How many of us forget how, God, how good God has been to us? And then he says, but, but they harden their necks, they harden their hearts, they harden their minds. And it says, and in their rebellion to God, they appoint a captain to return them to their bondage. How many of us can say that we've, we, we, we relegate God to this corner of our lives and we find other captains, other leaders, other things to pursue, other hobbies to pursue, other passions to pursue, and all of those things if they don't lead you, if they're not found foundational to Christ, if they don't lead you to Christ, if they're not Christ-centered. And look, there are things like it's good to be devoted to your family, right? It's good to be a hard worker at your job. I think the Bible would command you to do that. It's good to be devoted to your church. That's not what we're talking about here. Any kind of captain any kind of leader, any kind of influence that's not centered around Christ and His church that has nothing to do with that, the only thing it's going to do is lead you to bondage. Do you all see that? And how many of us appoint captains and we're, we're infatuated with the things of this world and they lead us to bondage? Can any of you relate with the children of Israel there? But listen to what it says. But thou art a God ready to pardon. Don't y'all like that? 
He's ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness. And forsookest them not. You can go on to read about how how even when God would not forsake them and He would bless them again, they would go into this constant spiral where they would forsake Him, but He would never forsake them. And in verse 31, He would say it again, for thou art a gracious and a merciful God. Psalm 116, verse 5. You don't have to turn to all these. It says, gracious is the Lord. Psalm 145, and verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Psalm 86 and verse 15, But Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and in truth. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. See, there's, there's some that have this idea of God that God is in heaven. And you can imagine the cartoons and He's, he's ready to... To, to pound you out with his anvil or he's ready to strike you down with lightning and he's just waiting for you to slip up so he can, he can pour out wrath upon you or punishment upon you. That is not the God that the Bible portrays. The Bible portrays a God who is ready to pardon, who is gracious and full of pity and full of mercy. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He whom I spake. He that cometh after Me is preferred before Me. He was before Me. And of His fullness have, we, have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. And I'm going to tell you, it may not be presented as the, as the, as the actual Levitical law or, or the law that was given by Moses, but, but if, you, if you're in a church or if you're in an environment where, where every Sunday or every Wednesday or whatever, you're, you're, these laws are given to you, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do something else, whether it's something to, to merit your salvation or something to, so God will love you if you'll do this better. Look, God wants us to do better, right? But, but none of that merits our favor with God. You see that? It wasn't the law. It says the law was given by Moses. Any church that is, that, is, that is centered around or focused on some kind of law to do this or to do that, they're focused on the wrong thing. Because it says the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Do you see that? If we want to be Christ-centered and we want to be grace-focused as a church, we can't focus on the law. We can't focus on our performance. We can't focus on do this or do that or do something else. We focus on what God did for us through Christ. It says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Our Lord, who, who the writer of Hebrews would say was set down at the right hand of God indicating the finished work of Christ, He is, he is sitting on a throne not of judgment, not a throne of the law, not a throne of condemnation. It says he, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you all see that? that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is it that imparts strength to you, that, that imparts the strength to endure trials or to endure temptations or to endure the, to endure the hard times of life? It is the grace of God, right? And he says, let us come boldly. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your high priest, who interceded on your behalf on the cross of Christ, uh, uh, on the cross, we don't have to come weakly to God. We don't have to beg God if you could just let me into your presence. Now we can come boldly before Him in the presence because we've been, we've been accepted in the Beloved. Do you see that? For the child of God, the believer in Jesus Christ, Paul plainly said, you have been accepted in the Beloved. 
And so as we come, we can come before God because we don't come in our own righteousness. We come in the righteousness of the beloved Son, which was bestowed upon us because grace. I hope, are you starting to see it all why we should just be mesmerized by this grace of God? Listen, listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It says, but the God of all grace. Do you see how Peter describes God? He's the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you to Him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. You say, well, well I, I, I'm testing God's grace. <laughs> Any of y'all ever felt like you're testing God's grace? Well, He's the God of all grace. Do y'all see that? He's not going to run out of grace. Why is grace so important? This is the, the Jerusalem Council. The, this is the greatest confession of faith ever found in the Bible or outside of the Bible. And in Acts chapter 15, and verse 11, it says this, but we believe. What did the New Testament church believe about salvation? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Y'all see that? How are you going to be saved? By grace alone. There's a parenthetical statement in, the, in Ephesians chapter 2. And I believe it's five words. It says, by grace ye are saved. And there's, there's, there's parentheses on both sides. And if, if your soteriology, if your doctrine of salvation, if, if the way you understand how you are saved for heaven doesn't fit within that parenthetical statement, it is not a biblical doctrine of soteriology. Because it is only by grace that you are saved. Your works do not save you. Your faith does not save you. Your baptism does not save you. Your perseverance does not save you. Your church membership does not save you. Your lineage does not save you. It is only by the grace of God that men can... There is no other name, Peter said, whereby men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And it is by His grace. Do you all see that? That's why we glory in His grace. If I, if I figure this up right, uh, grace, just grace, not, not different variations like gracious, or, but just grace, period, is, is used in 159 verses in the Bible, used 170 times, and the first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 6. So I want to turn there this morning as we, as we learn more about grace so that we can, we can, we can really glory in what is grace uh, let's let's begin to look at this uh, story of Noah, and it's when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah is an interesting figure in the Bible because he stands really as both the recipient of God's grace and an example to us, a type of of of, of, of uh, or a figure of us who have received God's grace, and he also stands uh, as a type or a figure uh, of God's grace through Christ and the work that Christ performed, and so. I want to, I hope that the Lord will bless us in the time we have remaining that we can look at that. In verse 5, Genesis chapter 6, it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and every creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. So God says, I am going to destroy everything. The, the earth has, has devolved very quickly, by the way. You see, in the, in the course of human history, through the sin of Adam, don't think, don't think sin is not serious, right? It has destroyed God said it is very good. He looked at His creation and said, this is very good. There was nothing wrong with it. Man disobeys, and six chapters later, He's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. You see how serious sin is. He says, I'm going to destroy everyone. But in verse 8, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was going to be saved from this coming destruction. He says, I'm going to destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth. I'm going to destroy man. I'm going to destroy beast. 
I'm going to destroy the creeping things. I'm going to destroy the birds. He's going to destroy it all. But here, standing as a type of God's people, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was going to escape the destruction that was coming. And so as we, as we start to try to understand more about God's grace and define God's grace, God's grace is, is, is a discriminating grace. You know, we, we, hear, we hear about discrimination today and there, it, it's almost in our society that there are, uh, there are many groups that are racing to, to, so they can display we're the most discriminated against, right? And that's kind of a bad word in our society. But it's true that God is a discriminating God. And He, he, he bestows discriminating grace upon a certain group of people. He didn't, he didn't offer grace to all the wicked men and say, if you want, you know, my grace says that you can, you can escape this destruction if you will do this, that, or the other. It says nothing of that sort. It just simply says that Noah found grace. And Noah didn't go looking for grace. Grace came looking for Noah. Do you understand that? It was in the eyes of the Lord that Noah found grace. It was the Lord that took the initiative to bestow His grace upon Noah. To discriminate upon something is to separate it, to select it, uh, to select from others. That's, that's what God did in the covenant of grace. He selected a people to bestow His grace upon. Uh, to make a distinction between someone and here's the definition, I believe this is from Webster's Dictionary, as in the last judgment, the righteous will be discriminated from the wicked. What, what, what will separate the righteous from the wicked at the second coming of Jesus Christ? The righteous will be those who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It won't be that they are the ones who found salvation through something they could do. They simply found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a peculiar people. You remember Paul said that to Titus. You are a peculiar people. That's not an odd type of people. That's a special kind of people. A chosen kind of people. And so, God comes and Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah stands as a representative of us. And it says, "And these are the generations of Noah. Verse 9, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Noah was a just man and perfect in, in, in the time period in which he lived. And Noah walked with God. He was just and perfect. Why, why could the Bible say that Noah was just and perfect? It was because Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see that? He was just. This, I wrote this down. This is from John Gill. It says, He was just not only before men, but in the sight of God. And not by his own works of righteousness, for no man is just by them before God, but the righteousness of the promised seed of the Messiah. How could he be just before God? It was, it was in the coming Christ is the only way that he could be just. See, to be just, for us to be just, we have to be made just, right? We have to be justified. And the only way that we can be justified in the sight of God is through the grace of God who sent His Son to die in place of us. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In case you thought maybe Noah wasn't a sinner, it says all of them have sinned. Being justified freely by His grace. How can we be justified? It's by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Back, back, to, back to a quote from John Gill again. He says, by sins that are passed. Okay, so it said, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that is a, right, a wrath-ending sacrifice, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of that's doing away with the sins that are past. He says, by the sins that are past are meant not sins before our baptism, nor the sins of a man's life only, but the sins of Old Testament saints who lived before the incarnation of Christ and the oblation of His sacrifice. 
And though this is not to be restrained to them only, for Christ's blood was shed for the remission of all His people's sins, past, present, and to come. Yet the sins of the saints before the coming of Christ seem to be particularly designed, which shows the insufficiency of legal sacrifices. You remember the writer of Hebrews said that the blood of bulls and goats, it could not take away sin. So it shows the insufficiency of legal sacrifices, sets forth the efficiency of Christ's blood and sacrifice, demonstrates Him to be a perfect Savior, and gives us reason under the present dispensation to hope for pardon since reconciliation is completely made. You know, one of the questions that people have as you talk about salvation in Jesus Christ, and especially if, 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 if your soteriology, like we said uh, before, adds something other than grace, if, if the message that you hear preached, and I'm just using this as an example, is that Jesus did His part and, and Jesus has offered salvation. And if you will hear the Gospel and believe the Gospel and change your life, and you'll, you'll, you'll accept His death and burial and resurrection, and it'll be applied to you. Well, the question often comes up, well, what happened about Old Testament? What about all those people who lived before Christ? How were they saved? And the answer to that is very simple. The same way you were saved. For by grace ye are saved. And so he says in, in, in Romans chapter 3, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, God has set forth Christ to be the propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Why could Noah be just thousands of years before Christ came on the scene? Because God had complete faith and confidence in His Son to shed His blood for Noah thousands of years later. Do you see that? That's why Esau could be translated and, uh, uh, excuse me, that's why people could go to heaven before the sacrifice of Christ. That's why people could be saved before the propitiation that took place on the cross of Calvary is because God had complete confidence in the fidelity of His Son to execute the covenant of grace. Do y'all see that? And so that's why they could say that Noah is a just man. And it says that Noah was perfect in his generation. He was, he was complete in moral excellencies. He was, he was a moral man, is what that's saying. He wasn't, he wasn't, we, we know from the testimony of Scripture that he wasn't perfect. He makes mistakes. We can see that. But he was striving to be. Jesus Christ said, Be ye perfect as your Father is perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is. He's saying you need to strive for maturity in Christ. You need to, you need to, you, you strive to be more like your Father. That's why God gave us the ministry. You know, in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, he says that the work of the ministry is the perfecting of the saints. That's why it's important to be in the house of God, hearing the Word of God. That's why it's important to, to, to listen to sermons and to read your Bible and all these things is that that was given, especially talking about being at church, the ministry was given, the reason you have preachers of the Gospel, it was given to perfect the saints. Do you see that? And so he says he was a perfect man. And then it says, Noah walked with God. And, and, and here, here's what I'll say about that. And maybe this would be for for younger people, or uh, I think it could be for all people. Um, a fulfilling life is not found in a race in the rat race against men. It's a fulfilling life is not a sprint to see how much money I can earn before I retire, how many toys I can accumulate, how far up the chain I can go how many trips I can take. Hey, all those things, we, we praise God if we have money in the bank and, and, and nice homes and nice cars. None of that will fulfill you. The rat race, the, the, the race that many people are running in this life, we can see just by observation of our friends and family, it's not working out for them, right? They're left empty. But the key to a fulfilling life is to walk with God. It's not to run the race. It's to walk with God. 
Because the, the Christian life's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And now y'all remember, I came in second at that 5K, right? <laughs> so I hope y'all hadn't forgotten that. But I'm not running a marathon. <laughs> I can sprint for a minute, but then I get tired and weary. But that's, well, life is long. So you better walk with somebody that can help you. Uh, over and over, this is Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God hath created us. We're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4.1, He says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Ephesians 4.17 says, uh, that you henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, Paul tells them to walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, it says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Be wise people. Over and over, that's just, that's just one, one book of the Bible, but that's a big theme in the book of Ephesians. We just walk with God. It's our daily walk. Um, and so Noah walks with God. And, and the only way to walk with God is to walk by faith with God, right? See, that's a grace. The, the, if you have faith in God today, you know how you got that? By grace. That's part of the glory of His grace. He, 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 he penetrated your heart and gave you faith. Isn't that amazing? Paul would say, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And so how did... And you can go to, you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and see that Noah was walking with God by faith. And so it says that he walked with God and he was walking... He wasn't, he wasn't trying to hide from God. You remember when God would come out and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, and Adam transgresses the law that God had given him, and he hides from God. He no longer wants to walk with God because he was condemned. And he, and he, he, felt, he felt remorse for his sin, and he felt that God was going to judge him. And he, he, he felt in many of you, the same thing you felt, in need of a Savior, right? In need, of, in need of a covering for his sins. Well, here Noah, who is a sinner, is walking with God uncondemned. Isn't that amazing? That's what faith does. That's justification. The doctrine of justification by faith. See, many would say that, you, that salvation is by grace through faith. And that your act of faith is what is kind of the catalyst to to take the grace and apply it to you. No, salvation is by grace. Salvation is experienced and enjoyed through faith. Y'all see that? And so, like Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And we find Noah walking with God. The only way we're going to walk with God is through the Spirit of God. It says in verse 10, And Noah begat three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Then he says to Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Runes shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without. And so, as, as we see here, God says, Here's, God, God has, Noah has found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but still there is something for Noah to do. Do you all see that? Now, it's not going to merit him grace in the eyes of the Lord, but he says, here's something you need to do. Uh, and so although he's found grace, he still has work to do. That goes back to Ephesians chapter 2 and 10, right? We found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Why did God, why did God, why did the God, the grace that brings salvation that's appeared to all men, it's teaching us that we should do some things, right? To, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously in, in this present world. That's what grace teaches us. Grace Grace says there's nothing, the message of grace says there's nothing you can do to earn my salvation, but there's a lot for you to do while you're still here on earth. You say, what can I do? You remember, you remember last week from Acts chapter 2, those men that said, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
They said, repent and be baptized. And then it goes on to say, Peter, with, with many other words, he did testify and exhort saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. Here's a generation that is corrupt. The earth is filled with wickedness. The earth is filled with violence. The imagination of men's heart are continually evil. And so what, what can Noah do? He can take the instructions of God and follow them and save himself from an untoward generation. And how's he going to do that? By grace. See, as primitive Baptists, we believe that the Bible clearly states there's an eternal salvation. Uh, you know, the election and predestination and justification and glorification and the, and the, and the calling of God, uh, regeneration, all those things we would categorize. They're all monergistic works that God does alone. You have nothing to do with them. You're the recipient of those acts. It's all by grace. We talk about a temporal salvation that Peter has talked about was save yourself from this untoward generation. Or when Paul would say to Timothy, talking about the doctrine, continue in those things. For in doing this, you'll both save yourself and then hear the, or what about the Philippian jailer? He said, how can I be saved? And Paul says, believe the gospel and be baptized and you'll be saved and your whole family. What's he talking about? He's talking about deliverance from this untoward generation. But I don't want to preach that in such a way where I say, Put your big boy pants on and make it happen. No, the only way you can be saved from this untoward generation is through the grace of God. It is the power that strengthens us to endure trials and temptations, right? When, when in 2 Timothy, I believe 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, when he's writing to Timothy, who is, who is a minister in a wicked time, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's a man who was timid and weak. He had already said, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Apparently, or of me, his prisoner. Apparently, he was suffering shame and reproach and he was timid. And he says, no, Timothy, you need to be strong in grace. This is the message that actually strengthens the church. This is the message that would, that, that people would fight for to their death throughout, throughout the history of the church of God. This is the message that is strengthened Men and women to live lives of holiness in an unholy generation. It's the message of grace, right? It's the glory of His grace. And here's something else we learn from, from, from verse 14 that I want you to understand. Just because He had found grace did not mean He didn't have to go through the storm. Do you all see that? God's people who have been chosen by God, redeemed by God, and recipients of His unmerited favor still have to go through the storms of life. But there's a God who is there with them throughout the storms. Do y'all see that? Because you're a recipient of grace doesn't mean that everything's going to be great for you the rest of your life. But there's going to be a friend with you to help you through it. It says, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. I read in one place that it'd be two times the length of a Boeing 747. It's a big boat, right? And he says this, and a window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit thou shalt finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with the lower, second, third stories shalt thou make it. Just a very interesting point here. He says there's a window. There's going to be a source of light in the ark. And he says, I want you to fashion that above. Not on the side. Not on the ground. Above. I think that's very important. Well, the, uh, James would say, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, right? Here's the source of light, the Father of light, and the gifts come from above. Your, I've heard it said this way, your uplook determines your outlook. Noah and his family are going to go through the storm, but they can't see the storm over here, or the storm over there, or the storm below them. Their only source of light is from above. How many of you struggle with the influence in your life is from the storm over here, or the storm over there, or the storm over here, and we forget to look up to the Father of lights. I know I do. I struggle with that. It says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. 
from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee I will establish my covenant. Now, Noah stands, Noah stands as a figure, an example of God's people who have received grace in the sight of God. But here, we get a glimpse of Noah as a type of Christ who executed the covenant of grace. But with thee I will establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come into the ark to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. See, there's coming a storm. There's coming destruction. There's coming wrath. And, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with Noah. And if you will execute this covenant, you will save your family. Do you all see that? And in verse 22, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So Noah is faithful to the covenant that God established with him to save his family. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. It was through the obedience of Noah that his family would be saved. Romans chapter 5 says this in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. And so basically what that's saying is, even though there wasn't a law given between Adam and Moses, you still had men, women, and children who were dying because they their nature has been compromised. And so death is a part of life. And like a king, it reigns and everyone is subject to it. It says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, or the, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded to many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Listen to this. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. How did Noah's family survive the coming Destruction through the obedience of Noah, of one man, right? How are God's people going to survive the coming destruction when God comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who know not God and do not obey the gospel? How are we going to survive when He, when He, when He, when He separates the sheep from the goats? How are we going to survive? Through the obedience of one. God made a covenant with Noah. Noah executed the covenant. Before the world ever began, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit entered into covenant together that they would work synergistically as one to save His people. The Father chose. The Son was sent 
to pay the price that you and I could not pay. And by grace, He entered into the world. And by grace, He hung upon the cross. And by grace, He was the propitiation for our sins. By grace, He faithfully did what God the Father said must be done. Do you see that? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Listen to this, y'all. The glory of grace. But where sin abounded. And how many of you can see in your daily life that sin's just abounding and I'm sick of it and I want to be out of it and I don't... Wouldn't it just be easy to just that, that nature that we have just to take it off every once in a while? And you think there's, there's no way. How could God... How could God love me? Sin is abounding in my life. And when we have thoughts like that, it's because we're not glorying in the grace of God. God's grace has lost its splendor to us. Because He says, we're, we're, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. We are all subject to sin. We're all subject to the penalty of sin. But through grace, God has negated that penalty. And you and I will live forever with Him. I know I've gone well beyond my time, but I want to look at in, in, in Genesis chapter 7. It shows Noah executing the plan that God had put forth. And Noah and his family are saved from the flood. They're saved from the destruction. And I just want to look at what our response to this grace should be. It says in verse 20, and Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and, of every, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What Noah's doing, Noah has been delivered and Noah is worshiping God. And it says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. You think, why, why should I... Why should we talked about gathering every Sunday with the saints here to hear the word of God? That it's for the perfecting of the saints, and there's a lot in it for you. A lot of people think that that's their main question about anything they're going to do. What's in it for me, right? There's a lot in it for you. I'm strengthened by your fellowship. I, I, I don't know how to describe the feeling I had this morning just to just to be with you all. There's a lot in it for me. We don't come to church though. We don't gather to worship for what's in it for us. We worship to offer our time, to offer our praise as a sweet-smelling savor to God. And if, and if you can just for a moment understand the glory of His grace, I don't think an hour and a half on Sunday morning is even going to be enough for you to be satisfied with the praise you're offering to God. He is a gracious God, isn't He? 